Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash member news code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the podcast. As you know, every so often when we find a book we think you really need to read, we will hold one of these special discussions with the author, and today we're very lucky to have with us John Carl, ABC's chief Washington correspondent and the author of Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. As those of you who listen also know, we've been trying to be very careful about not besieging you with every possible book about what happened with Donald Trump. But this is one of the really, really good books told by somebody with a really, really good perspective. And so before I even start, as I welcome you, John, I want to congratulate you. Because the book's great. It offers insights into something we all thought we knew very well that we haven't seen before. So congrats. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And and I I have to say, the book is the most important work that I've ever done. And I, I really appreciate your words. I want people to read this book because I learned in the process of reporting on this. There is more to know. There's more to know. And there is a history here that needs to be chiseled into granite, into marble, because there's an effort to essentially whitewash what happened. And in fact, what happened is worse than what we all, I think, at least in my case, what I realized at the time. No question about it. People are spending millions of dollars to try to hide the truth from Congress, to hide the truth from the public. And uh, books like this are the only way we may get at some of this information. Let me start before the upheaval of the last year of the Trump administration, because one of the things that makes the book so good is that you bring a long-term perspective to Donald Trump. I think the first time you interviewed Donald Trump was like a quarter of a century ago. You were in New York. You covered him then. How much has he changed? Or alternatively, are you struck by the degree to which he has not changed? I first interviewed him 27 years ago. It was in 1994, I believe it was September of 1994, 
in Trump Tower and I was working as a very, very junior reporter for the New York Post at the time. And um, I had quite a, quite a scene, which I described in my first book, Front Row at the Trump Show. And the striking thing is how little he has changed. That guy, and I have this photograph from that first interview. And if you look at him, it is actually amazing how little he, I mean, he looks the same. He's gained weight, he's, but he's got, I mean, it's the same look. It's the same expression. It's the same red tie that's too long and, you know, big dark suit, the big grin and the crazy. He, he's the same guy. I mean, back then he was telling me how marvelous and wonderful Trump Tower was. And it was the greatest building in the world and all this. And, you know, and he was telling me things that weren't true about Trump Tower. And now he's the, the same thing is about him. And, uh, you know, the stakes are much higher. His lies are much more consequential. But the guy and his approach to everything is almost exactly the same. Your description of it leaves me with a kind of image of a child on the beach building sandcastles, imagining great kingdoms and having the waves watch each one of them away. That's sort of the story of his career. You were there at the beginning of the administration as well. How far in did you get before you started to say, this is not going to be the usual administration, that, that this is going to be strange or perhaps even dangerous? Well, it probably was during the transition before he even got to the White House. Uh, I mean, I'll never forget the first press conference that he did as president-elect in the lobby of Trump Tower and how surreal and strange it all was. You know, you got the sense that he was going to say anything, regardless of whether it was true, he was going to bring his the same approach that he had brought to being the uh, celebrity tycoon in Manhattan to the White House. But I think that the moment inside the White House that really hit me that, that we were in entirely uncharted territories and potentially uh, a dangerous situation is when he accused Barack Obama of wiretapping Trump Tower. And it wasn't just that here you had a president who was barely in office just still probably learning his way around the, the, the building, accusing his predecessor of something that was entirely absurd. And of course, in, in, by the way, in the mind of Trump, it's all still true, you know, because Carter Page and the FISA, I mean, he said that Barack Obama wiretapped, spied on him on Trump Tower, which was an absurd allegation. And he did it on a Saturday in a tweet. Remember, he spelled wiretap with, I think, two Ps. It wasn't just the comically ridiculous way that he made this allegation. It was that it completely blindsided everybody around him. So I reached out. I got a hold of his chief of staff. It was that kind of a thing. I need to get right to, I mean, what, what is Reince? Reince, what the hell is going on? What is this? Where's this coming from? And it became immediately clear that Reince had no idea until he saw the tweet that it was coming or what it was going on. And he was trying to figure out what, 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 what Trump was talking about, where this thing was. So, I mean, you know, we were, we were obviously in a place where all those kind of structures that are put in place at the White House, all the processes, you know, you and I talk about the interagency process and like, you know, the things that are done to kind of, you know, make sure by the time a decision gets to the president, it's, you know, everything has been vetted. The options are all lined out. It's a, there's a, no, there's no process. It was whatever Trump thought at that given moment. 
you know, as you say, from the beginning, we knew there was something wrong. We had heard the allegations of Russia beforehand. We uh, saw the firing of Comey. We saw, you know, the spectacle of the Mueller report. We saw Charlottesville. There's a lot in the first couple of years of the Trump administration that was deeply disturbing and dangerous. And there was some that was comical, although not intentionally comical. But there is a moment. And I think it's this is kind of the pivot point from your prior book on the front row at the Trump show to this book. But there is a moment where it all starts to metastasize, where things get even darker than they were before. And you start getting the sense that Trump and the people closest to him will do anything to hold on to power. And I'm wondering when you pinpoint that. When do you think things sort of ratchet it up a notch? I think you can pinpoint it to the moment that he is acquitted in the impeachment trial for the first time. The impeachment trial, which ends in the beginning of February of 2020. Pandemic hasn't hit. We, we, we know that there's an outbreak in China. We, we know that, I mean, there's some initial indications that there's something coming, but this is pre-pandemic, pre-US pandemic. And Trump is acquitted and he just feels vindicated and hell-bent on revenge. And it's revenge, not so much Democrats who had impeached him and voted to convict him in the Senate. It's revenge on those closest to him who he felt had betrayed him, people in his administration. And there's an immediate purge. And it's Vindman, it's Vindman's twin brother, that's Gordon Sondland, and then it keeps going and stretched out. And it's exactly at this moment that he brings in Johnny McEntee, 29 years old. The only thing on his resume related to the White House that he had done was carrying Trump's bags in the, in the, in the first years, his body guy. He's put in charge of presidential personnel with the mission to root out anybody in the Trump administration, Trump's people, the people Trump had hired, to root out anybody that is insufficiently exuberant in their devotion to Donald Trump. And so at first, it's all the people associated with the impeachment trial. Lane McCusker, the, uh, the acting comptroller, because, you know, in her role at the Pentagon, in her role over there, she had uh, tried to get things moving on aid to Ukraine. It branches out further and further and further to the point where McEntee hires these kids. It's kind of like the Red Guard, you know, Mao's Red Guard or, you know, the people, people like the, the analogy people used to me who worked in the White House was that this is like our Stasi or a Gestapo, the internal police force to root out what you might call the deep state. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the never Trumpers, you know, anybody who is insufficiently on board. And I think that's that's kind of the key moment where where everything is set in motion and Trump is going to do everything he can to use every instrument at his, at his disposal to maintain power and to keep anybody, any enemy from within from stopping him in the quest to do so. You may not know this. There's no reason why you would, but I'm writing a book now. And the book I'm writing is about 
because I was trying to find some positive story to tell. And the book I'm writing is about how people within the Trump administration ended up being the guardrail that finally worked. That there were people, some of whom were dedicated longtime public servants, some of whom were political appointees, some of whom had even done some bad things. And that these people at a certain point said, nope, can't go any further. And some started early in the administration and some started later in the administration. So one of the reasons I read your book with such interest is it depicts the struggle between these two groups. And, you know, I've probably done 100 interviews for the book and then talking to a bunch of people. I think it was Bill Taylor, who was involved in the Ukraine thing, who described as a battle between the real government and the informal government. The informal government was the the loyalists and the crazies, the Rudys and the Grinnells and the McEntees. And the formal government was people who had jobs and were confirmed by Congress or were career public servants. And there's this deep struggle. And your book really gets into it a lot. And one by one, very senior people start, you know, John Kelly and Kristen Nielsen and Esper and Barr, and of course, on and on all start saying, no, that's a bridge too far. And there's a real sort of, and, you know, even Pence, you know, on January 6th gets to the point of there's a bridge too far. And I was just wondering how you would characterize that struggle. And then I have a follow-up question. I think it's a central theme and I'm really glad that you're devoting a book to it because I, I think that there's also an interesting moral dilemma that these people faced and they'll be questioned for the rest of their lives. They were part of this and they stayed and how could they have stayed? And when they saw all that he was doing, some of them stayed after January 6th, some resigned in protest. And it's like, even after January 6th, how could you stay? And, you know, in in the case of some of these people, I think the answer is thank God they did. Thank God these people were there. The easy thing is to say, screw this. This guy's insane. I'm getting out. Betsy DeVos, Elaine Chow on on January 7th. Matt Pottinger on on the 6th. All, I mean, very good reasons for leaving. But, uh, I mean, Pat Cipollone, who was the White House counsel, who had written that terrible letter uh, going into the first impeachment, uh, basically saying that no officials in the Trump administration were going to cooperate with Congress because this was a sham impeachment, as if like, you know, setting basically the precedent that you can defy subpoenas. <laughs> you can, you can just that there is no more congressional oversight. But Cipollone came very close to resigning several times, even before the 6th. And uh, and stayed and and I mean he knew that there was a line of legality uh, that and Trump started freezing him out of meetings. I mean there, there's a very key meeting on January fourth in the late afternoon, early evening, in the Oval Office that I described in detail with Pence, where Trump is really turning the screws on. You got to do this on January sixth, and he's got Eastman in there, and he's got this other attorney, uh, Mark Martin, over the phone. And Pence is in there with this chief of staff and with his counsel. But what's very interesting about that meeting is there's no Pat Cipollone. I mean, if there's ever a meeting for the White House counsel to be in it, but Trump knew that Cipollone opposed this and locked him out. Chris Liddell is another, is another guy. I'm sure you're going to be dealing with him quite a bit. He was 
deputy chief of staff. He had been he had he's actually the person that served in the in the White House longer than anybody in in the entire Trump administration because he was there on day one and he left a, a few minutes before noon on on the twentieth of of this year, long after Trump you know hours after Trump had left and everybody else had you know most everybody else had left. And one of his jobs was to be the point person on the transition. It was a position that he had been given way before the election in early 2020. But that means he had like legal obligations to work with the Biden team on the transition. And he was doing that. And he never once briefed or talked to or mentioned it to Donald Trump or to Johnny McEntee, by the way. So I I think that those people, um, like you said, a lot of them have things that uh, they may be justifiably uh, criticized for, for, for years to come, Bill Barr, but thank God at the right moment said, this is too much. I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow it. What I worry about is that those are the people that would be, you know, screened out if there ever were another, another Trump administration. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's, that, that's really where I'm going to go with a follow-up, but I, I'll tell you that uh, in doing what I did, I, one of the people I spoke to, Got a call from Chris Liddell on January 6th. Yeah. And he was very shaken up. And uh, he said, What do I do? And this person, who is a very stalwart Republican senior official in a prior administration, said, You got to stay. You got to stay because you do need a transition. You know, you do need to have this connectivity. And there are a lot of people, you know, I mean, Esper, you know, you write about it. Deployed troops, you know, looked like he was going along with things, but was actually not. And, you know, Nielsen and those folks, they were having meetings to ensure that the election was not fiddled with by the Russians. But they called it a kind of parallel NSC. They just stayed out of the NSC process. But as you indicate there, person after person with whom I spoke said, I was very worried Trump would win. Because if Trump won, the McEntees and the Grinnells and the Cash Patels and the Chris Millers and those guys were going to stay and that they had learned what you do to make an IG not a threat and what you do to bury a whistleblower report and what kind of people you know were a problem and that you would be moving much more into a kind of authoritarian realm in a second administration. And these lifelong Republicans were deeply disturbed that that's where it was going to, that's where it was going to go. But of course, you know, now here we are a year after January 6th and none of the planners have been held accountable yet. Trump is still the leading figure in the Republican party. He could win again and he could put this, this information to use. To me, that's beyond shocking. How do, how do you react to the fact that we are where we are? Well, well, first, what you're saying, essentially, and I totally agree, is that one of the things that prevented this from being far worse was the inexperience and profound incompetence of Trump and the people around him. And that won't be the case again. I mean, there'll be plenty of incompetence, but there's enough experience and enough. We know where the, you know, where the levers are. I hear, and I did hear as I was reporting on the book, precisely that sentiment that you've just expressed that if he had won, 
what would the second term cabinet have looked like? What would the West Wing have looked like in the second term? And this is said in a way of like horror by people who were there in the first term, but again, felt that they had done something to try to keep, protect the country basically from the most reckless urges of the commander in chief and that they wouldn't be there anymore. And it would be people that would not only not prevent it, but encourage those reckless urges or however you want to describe them. By the way, I should just say full disclosure, I don't think he's actually going to run. And I think uh, that if he were to run, and this may be my most controversial thing I'll say here is, I don't think it's a slam dunk that he would win the Republican nomination. I have a sense that he is so thoroughly, relentlessly focused on the past. That's obviously what all he cares about is proving to the world that uh, making the world believe that he actually won in 2020. The last thing he wants to do is face the possibility of actually losing again and not having the levers of power at his disposal. You know, he'd be, he'd be a loser sitting home in Mar-a-Lago, not, not in the Oval Office. He wouldn't have a vice president presiding over the electoral count, all of that. And I think that Republicans saw how they can win in this, in this off year, you know, in, in, in Virginia and how they got very close to winning and closer than we thought they would have in, in New Jersey with candidates who were in one case, one in New Jersey actually was antagonistic towards Trump and in, in Virginia, you know, young basically trying to pretend Trump didn't exist. I don't think Republicans are ready to hand over their nomination to a self-destructive force like Trump again, regardless of what the polls show at this moment. It's true. Although I guess the, I guess the threat there is that there are Trump-like or Trump-ish factions within the party that would seek to manage the government in ways akin to the way that he would manage the government. There are certainly people that we would have thought were wildly extreme before who are now sort of accepted by the mainstream of that party. Whether it's Bobert or Gosar, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or whether it's uh, you know some of the behavior that you get out of Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, so that's an open question. I guess my last question is: as you look at this, as you look back at this, you've been deeply involved in the front lines of media coverage of presidents for four presidents, and Trump was an extraordinary case. And many in the media tried to cover Trump as though it were not, and in fact felt, I think, an ethical obligation to try to cover Trump as though it were not, although I think that was misplaced to some degree. You, you seem to have gone through your own battlefield conversion here with how you treat a president like this. And I was just wondering, how do you, I mean, if you want to talk about that, you can, or how do you reckon the, the media coverage and was, did it play any role in enabling the president. There was a real problem in, in the beginning, in the very, very beginning that, that, that enabled Trump to become the force he was. And that is, you know, he announces he comes down the escalator and uh, he's treated as kind of a, um, just like a, you know, almost like a diversion. I mean, he's, nobody thinks he really has a chance of winning. People didn't think he was actually going to run. And when he ran, it's like, well, you know, this will be just kind of a flash in the pan. And news organizations generally did not devote the kind of resources and effort 
that they did to uh, they they do in every presidential cycle to vetting and investigating and major candidates. And, you know, he was kind of given a, a relatively free ride early on until it was too late and he'd already caught on. By the way, I have a, uh, this is not just the media, it's also like, you know, democratic interest groups uh, as well. You know, American Bridge, which was set up to kind of be the, uh, kind of investigate, you know, Republicans and, um, and, and, and get information out into the public on major Republican candidates, produced a book going into the 2016 election, which I have in my office uh, at the ABC Bureau. It's a hardcover book. It's a very kind of a slick publication. And it has uh, it has little chapters on all of the prospective 2016 presidential candidates, and there's like 20 some candidates, some whom end up not even running. But it's you know it's a, it gives kind of background. You know Jeb Bush. There's some issues he had when he was governor of uh, of Florida. Here are some other issues. He's, you know the background on the financial dealings of. Others, you know, Scott Walker, that was good. all it's got. It's got a chapter and verse investigative thing. What's really interesting about this book put out by American Bridge is. There's no mention of Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, they didn't take him seriously either. They're like, you know. But in terms of. Trump's coverage, first of all, I, I think it's inaccurate to say that Trump kind of got soft coverage or any kind of any close to a, a free ride when he was in the White House or even in the fall campaign of 2016. I mean, the coverage was pretty relentlessly negative and particularly on cable news. I mean, it became kind of a running thing like, oh my God, look what this crazy guy did today. You know, uh, look at this latest awful, horrible. I mean, it was constant bombardment of negative coverage, which was in almost all cases justified, but there was almost a it also played into his strategy, was to, which is to make the media the opposition party. That's my real opposition, not the Democrats. It's the media. And therefore, when the media does something, well, it's just the opposition party. What do you expect? Don't believe that. Story in the New York Times, what do you expect? The failing New York Times is out to get me. And you don't have to like get into the substance of what the story is. So my own kind of battlefield conversion, I don't know if it's a conversion so much as kind of a you know, difference in, 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 in approach. I was very tough on on Trump, but I also f- believe that he was president of the United States, and you know you express you, you you respect the office, and I did not want to play into their portrayal of the media as the opposition party. Although, I mean, all you have to do is read front row at the Trump Show to see. I mean, I I mean, I battled mightily, especially with that. Remember the first guy was his press secretary. What was his name? Sean uh, Sean Spicer. I mean, there's some there. So. I mean, this this guy. Anyway, I, I go into chapter and verse on my battles with with the Trump administration in those first three years. But when we got to the fourth year, the pandemic is happening, and his lies have uh, clearly deadly consequences, literally because of what he is saying about the pandemic. You know, I, I mean, I I asked him. In the briefing, my question, I would never have really phrased the question like this in the past, but why did you lie to the American people and why should we trust what you say now? You could have said, I look like the opposition party. I mean, that's not what I wanted to do, but I was opposed to lies. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not about positive or negative. It's about true or false. It's and about I true mean, or false. Yes, right? yes, yes. You know, and ultimately, that's what you are you are getting at. And I think it says something about talking about this book and this year and this 
metastasization of a presidency that we've managed to get right up until that point without talking about the biggest public health crisis in 100 years that led unnecessarily to the death of several hundred thousand people and the suffering of millions of others in which the president and those lies played a big role. That's in this book as well. And so I strongly, strongly urge everybody who's listening to this to go and to get and to read Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show, because it's not just a great book. It's not just very entertaining, interesting and exciting, even though some of those events we don't want to relive perhaps in our head. But I think it's a cautionary tale. I think there are many themes within this book that are warnings about places we could go if we are not careful. Uh, and that's why I think it's an important book. I think it's extremely well done. I want to thank you, John, for writing it and for all that you do. And for those of you who are out there listening and want to hear more of what we've got, go to the DSRnetwork.com. And uh, we've got you know shows almost every day on a variety of these issues. So we'll follow up on it as well. In the meantime, the book is Betrayal, the Final Act of the Trump Show by John Carl, who's ABC's chief Washington correspondent. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thank you, John, for joining us. Great. Thank you very much, David. Always great to talk to you. Hi, this is Harry Lickman, former United States attorney, current L.A. Times legal affairs columnist and creator and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day from voting rights. Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace to the January 6th Select Committee. We're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena. To U.S. national security and foreign relations. I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11, and I've seen what happens when there's boots on the ground. To anything and everything at the Department of Justice. The hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those. To hear roundtable discussions with the country's most prominent voices from government, journalists, and law. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts.